0: Welcome to Mental Toughness with Dr. Rob Bell. Each week, Dr. Rob sits down with athletes, executives, and expert coaches to talk about mental toughness and their hinge moment. Here's your host, Dr. Rob.
1: I think about our organization today, and um, you know, in parallel to a rugby team. Number one, I don't look at myself as the head coach. I don't look at myself as the CEO. I look at myself as part of the team. Um, I look at myself as kind of a leader. From I'm gonna, I'm gonna lead by also doing. Um, I, I think about the different team members. You know, from HR to our recruiting to our sales team members to our ops team members, right? And I, I celebrate the differences.
2: This podcast is brought to you by LiveMomentous.com. Leading the way in human performance is Live Momentous. For listening today, you get a discount at checkout. Enter the code DRB20. That's DRB, the number 20, for 20% off your order. Live Momentous. Optimize. Perform. Recover. So our guest today on episode 131 of the Arnold Cuffins podcast, she is CEO and founder of Veracity Consulting, Kansas City-based tech company. It's focused on IT solutions for its customers, commercial and government sectors. Uh, she's a mom, golfer, former rugby player, wine enthusiast. I got a chance to, to hang out with our guests and always a big fan of... I always say this, like a dog can always see another dog from afar. Like if I'm running with my dog, you can always spot another dog. So when you see somebody that's successful, has that it factor, um, as well as like the compassion piece, like I'm immediately drawn to that. So that's why I was always drawn to our guest today. Without further ado, it's Angela Hurt. Angie, thank you so much for taking the time and joining us today.
1: Absolutely. I love that analogy. Like that is That is fantastic. I'm going to use that too. You always give me so many nuggets, Rob. I love it.
2: Well, I I learned that from like running with with my dog all the time. I mean, pitch dark and like she kind of perks up and like a dog can always spot another dog from afar. So it's like when you see somebody has kind of it factor. Yeah. I got plenty of them though. You know, you just let me know. I'll keep them coming.
1: I love it. Great.
2: But this is, this is your episode and I'm thankful to have you on. I have a lot of questions, but let's start with, uh, I mean, it's a, it's still a fun time to be a Kansas city chiefs fan.
1: It is. Yeah. They're in Germany this weekend and we are already, um, uh, I'm a season ticket holder and I had on my calendar the the Sunday game, but it's at 8 30 AM. And I was like, what are they doing? That's so different that it's at 8 30 AM. Cause it's considered a home game for Kansas city. So, um, I did not go to Germany due to my injury, but, uh, um, we do plan on getting up at, at early on Sunday morning and and um, kind of experiencing that with some friends over some, I'm sure, Bloody Marys and mimosas and some food and
2: yeah,
1: uh, yeah, it'll be it'll be fun.
2: Um, how was your Super Bowl experience last year? Was that the first Super Bowl you've been to? No, it year?
1: was my second. So oh, I the went problem. the first year. I, I went when uh, Kansas City was in Miami, and that was far exceeded my expectations. This this past year I I didn't um I don't think I enjoyed it as much, but I I might have gotten a little sick right before that time. I'm hoping it wasn't COVID um, was was negative on that. But um so I I kind of forged through not feeling the best. And 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 then in addition to that, I think that the fan experience in, in Phoenix was just not quite what it was in in Miami. And I, I just think it was the facilities is all, you know, the venue what they were working with. But you know, cool thing to be at, right? Like it's exciting, no matter what.
2: I'm always curious about that because I mean, I was out there during that time, but didn't get up mm-hmm. the game. Obviously, I was out there for waste management. So there's a lot going on in Phoenix that week. Yeah. So what was different, you know, in in your experience? Um,
1: I I think the fan experience was different. Um, the when I say fan experience, I mean our opponents fans that were in the stadium was just a yeah, different the best
2: things that that's right yeah
1: it's a, it was a very very interesting um, um atmosphere um there were i mean at any time you could have expected that a brawl was just going to happen right it was it was intense like that type of intense um it, again the fan experience at, in miami the way that their venue is set up it's just so cool with the fountains and the outdoor space that you're in um, and here it was off to the side. And so it just, you know, for me, I, I think the excitement from the first time of going probably had me a little more energized. I also got, got to experience it with my son in Miami. Um, so there were a lot of things that made that special. And now I went, I was like, I don't feel like I ever need to go to another world, uh, world series. Look, take it back from that. Another, uh, another Super Bowl. I think you experience it and that's good, but then you, you realize like all the things that you miss being in the stadium It's unlike you know, it's like any other game that you go to when you're live versus seeing it on TV. My people were texting me. It's like, what happened in Mahomes and his ankle? And I'm like, I don't know. You guys know more than I do. Right. You know, and then they're like, oh my gosh, how great was that halftime performance? And I'm like, I have no idea. We really couldn't see it. You know, it's just stuff like that, that I think it's great to experience. Everybody should do it if you have an opportunity, but I, I don't think it's a yearly occurrence. Even if we go back this year, I, I just don't think it's going to happen.
2: Yeah. You know, that's the one part that always gets discounted, too. I mean, it's one thing to look at athletes when, you know, Michael Jordan drops 65 and just a wonderful game. But the part about Mahomes is, I mean, that was was an injury. I mean, that was hurt. Mm -hmm. It's to come back and to excel, like, when the adversity is against you. I mean, that's what I look for, like, in athletes. But you can't tell how tough they are until they're under adversity. Right,
1: yeah. He's been fun to watch from that perspective. He's definitely one tough dude.
2: Yeah. And uh and like the quarterback series on Netflix too. I mean, that that illuminated too about, I mean, his intense training that he goes through.
1: Um, yeah, absolutely.
2: All right. I want to I want to get to about you. The one thing that I do not know, it's like what, what was life growing up for you? What was that like?
1: Yeah, it's um it was fun. Um, it was stressful. Um, I grew up in a small town 75 miles southeast of Wichita, um, very close to the Oklahoma border. Um, to an entrepreneurial dad who, um, great at making money. He was in the oil business. He was in the water well business, all, everything around a drilling rig. So I grew up on a drilling rig. I grew up, um, you know, with oil all over me or mud all over me, depending on which it was that he was doing at the time. Um, so a physical labor type of environment, um, a guy who, um, you know, was was great at going out and and figuring out how to make money, but not a good businessman. So we grew up with a lot of financial stress as children, and um, you know it, it kind of shaped me in a really interesting way. And you you kind of look at people that that and they you either um, you know you you either approach things with um, abundance, you know, or, or with scarcity and. Somehow I came out of it with an abundance mindset and, you know, I have, I have other people in my family that have such a scarcity mindset, Um, but it, it shaped me in a lot of ways. But, you know, there's, there's scenarios of which looking back, you know, I can't imagine my child kind of going through some of the things that we're going through. It's kind of made me over responsible, right? I also was not a middle child, but kind of a middle child. I have two older siblings and then I'm a twin, but I'm the oldest of the twin and um, peacekeeper of the family, you know, all of that stuff. And so um, I've I've kind of experienced a lot of therapy to kind of realize how much that shaped me both in the positive things and the negative things that you experience in life. So yeah, that's, that's, I but in that small town, um, ride your bike everywhere, uh, riding horses every single weekend. Um, I, I think about some of the things that I did as a kid on a the back of a horse that I would never consider doing today. Like going across rivers, going up banks that are so steep that, you know, looking at it now, you'd be like, wait, I did that? Like, that was, that was insane. I could have really gotten hurt. You know, you know, the experience that when you're a child, you just have no fear. I grew up with no fear. And, you know, one of the things that I often get to talk about, small town, no softball team. So I played baseball with the boys, me and my sisters did. And yep. I was a pitcher and I was a shortstop. And so I not only did I play, I, my older sister was the same way. We both made the all-star teams. Um, we both started in our position. We were very good. We were, we, were the, we were the ones to be kicked out of our position, right? Everybody's coming for your position. Um, and that's translated really well to me as an adult, being in the IT space, right? Everybody's like, oh, you're in such a male-dominated um, space, but I never looked at it that way. Cause I'm like, I've always been in a male dominated space. Right. So, um, I, when I think about my childhood though, I, I have like all of there, there's these very scary, um, stressful such situations, but then everything else is just, just, a I think of fun. I think of how our kids don't get to do things today, like what we, get, we got to do in this small town and I wouldn't have it any other way. I can't imagine raising my son there, but at the same time, like I I had a great experience from that.
2: Yeah. What was an experience that stood out mm-hmm. to you from sports mm-hmm. that for good, bad or indifferent that just resonated and just kind of stuck in, in your memory?
1: I've got a couple things. So one, when I was in fourth grade, I would come in our house and I would jump over the, over the sofa. It was kind of, it was, it was not backed up against a wall. And so I would jump over it. And my mom got so tired of me doing that, that um, one day she says, Hey, tomorrow, when you get off the school bus, you're going to go into the high school and you're going to see Debbie Simmons, coach Simmons, and she's going to teach you some stuff. And so she taught me hurdling. So I was a hurdler and she started, she started teaching me in fourth grade. And I did junior Olympics at that time. And, um, you know, I was always faster than the, all the other girls, but faster than the boys. And, um, you know, it was my first experience to going and and competing with other people in different space. And um, I realized that I was still good, but I wasn't the best. And that was kind of that was good for me. I think it was really good for me. So I started doing that um, uh, through an early, like I said, an early age, which kind of led me then. Once I got to high school, they were still the coaches there. And I had extreme devotion to those two people. It was Mr. and Mrs. Simmons. They were, they're a married couple. They were the PE teachers and coaches of many things. Yep. And um I, I say this because of, you know, one of the things that I that I do and I think I do well is develop relationships. And relationships are extremely important to me. And, you know, when I think back to our sophomore year of high school, all of a sudden we get a softball team and every girl goes out for softball and i'm like i can't i can't leave mr and mrs simmons right they did all of this for me and i i didn't go out and everybody expected that i would because i was such a baseball player and you know all of that and um i just had extreme devotion for them but it was it was yeah. something that i i i think back to a lot when i think of sports um you know then when when we started i started getting older and able to play volleyball um, which became a big love of mine and basketball. Like I loved them all. I couldn't choose, right? I, I, I was like, I can't, if, if they were in the same season, I would be on the struggle bus. If I lived in a big city and there was club sports and you kind of start honing in on one sport, I would have struggled with that. Um, but yeah, I just, you know, in each of those scenarios, I feel like I was given an opportunity that I took advantage of. So example, uh, volleyball, small town, it's not like we're playing club not like there's big camps that you can do. The high school puts on a camp for the junior high kids, you know, that's about it. But I was um offered an opportunity to go to a junior college right down the road for a summer camp. And I think that was another thing that kind of changed things for me from an athletic perspective. The things that I learned, the things that I was able to come back and teach other girls. And um you know, I I, I think about how it was Debbie Simmons, Mrs. Simmons who was like hey, I think you can go to this. And if you guys don't have the finances for it, we'll find a way to get you a scholarship, you know, things of that nature. But it was always somebody seeing talent in me and then giving me an opportunity and then me grabbing that. Um, and, and so volleyball paid for my college, right? So that was something that was was a, um, important for me to continue on. And and I sometimes joke and say, you know, people are like, what did you go to college for? And I said, volleyball. And they're like, well, you know, well, will have a degree in something. But literally, like, going to college just extended my career, my, my athletic career for me. And I just happened to get an education while I was there. You know, it's not, not the mindset that I want to tell my kids, like, go be a, go be a student athlete student comes first and then athletics. Right. Um, I wasn't a great student. I was a, um, I was a very average student because I didn't try hard at school. Cause I was trying so hard at my sports. Right. That's where I focused my time and energy. Um, I did. I, I I did manage to be on the National Honor Society in high school, and again, it was like, well, what do I have to do? And it's all these other things I did, but you also have to have a three point four. And I was like, oh well, I can do that. So next thing you know, I've got a three point four one, just so I can, just so I can get those extra tassels. And that all came from me being at a high school graduation and saying, hey, wh- what are those extra tassels? Oh, that's this. I'm like, well, I want that. Right. So what do I gotta do to do it? Got it done. But that's you know, that's just kind of how how everything in my life has kind of played out.
0: Hey, good looking. If you like this podcast and are already a badass, but it's all way too complicated, then visit our website drrobbell.com and schedule a call with us to help capture your very own hinge moment.
2: So that was going to be my next question. If -hmm. if you set a goal in front of you, Mm
0: -hmm.
2: it doesn't matter what kind of obstacle or opportunity is going to be there. You're, you're going to reach it, aren't you?
1: I'm going to do my damnedest. That's for sure. Um, you know, so with my company, we've had this growth year after year after year, and people will ask me, you know, what our goals are. And and this last year, this is going to sound insane. After 17 years, this last year was the first time that we set individual sales goals for our individual salespeople. Because in me, I, I I was I was grew up a salesperson before I became an entrepreneur, and I wanted to be managed. I wanted to manage people the way I wanted to be managed, which is let me just get my stuff done right. Well, as an organization, we've set out for this 10-year vision with a three-year plan. And part of that is, well, it's all of that is around financial growth, right? right? And so we, this is the first time that we did that. And I told people, I'm like, this is why I've never wanted to set financial goals for our sales team. I become a different person. I become a, what the hell did we do yesterday that we're not closer to the step today, right? Like I, all of a sudden, it's like, we have a very successful company. We're doing great financially, all that's good. Everybody's having a great old time. and then we set this goal and all I can see is the goal, right? And I have to remember my other leadership skills besides you know becoming a crazy person around that. it's it's I've told people I'm like, you guys, I'm gonna I will become a crazy person as soon as we do this because I hate missing. I hate missing a goal.
2: Angie, I think that's a huge part and I'm wondering if you could just unpack that a little bit further. Mm-hmm. I kind of get it, and I just want to steer you in this direction, but like really delve into that piece, please.
1: Which part? The crazy person? The goal-oriented? Oh, well, I, the, yeah.
2: When the when the goal is there, and how that becomes sort of the sole focus, what what takes place?
1: Yeah, what
2: happens for you.
1: Um, vulnerably, I'll tell you what just came to mind, and what I think that it is is I don't like failure, and I'm. I have put myself in a position so often that my success has largely been driven by my ability to make things happen, and the close people around me. Right, so my exact leadership team. Right, so I'm like, we're we're going to be successful. This is good, and and I have a lot of control in that. And I, quite frankly, I feel like I have less control now because I let individual ex salesperson you know determine what their goal was for the year. I challenged them. Do you really think we can do this? Yes, I think we can do this. And as we're getting closer, you know, every month we're reporting every quarter, we're telling our larger team what, how close we are to our goal. Um, We set financial goals, not just for the salespeople get comped, you know, as they make those things happen. So they get immediate gratification. But we then set financial bonus goals for the rest of the team who are not part of the sales team. For, you know, as we reach these goals, this is what happens. And so then when we're in these reporting meetings and we're talking about this, all I think about is how we're letting the team down if we don't do it, right? All I can think about is how this is going to impact other people and their expectations and their excitement around this if we don't get there. And um, and for me, I think that changes is, is seeing that target um, kind of thinking through what if we don't make it. And then what can I do to make it happen? And how much can I push on people when, when, you know, so much of our, so much of our business, the decision-making is out of our hands, right? The only way to make those things happen is by having just more prospects. It's not really by, we have uh, a client who has a need and we have an opportunity. And next thing you know, that client's like, I'm not getting approved for that budget, right? Like there's a lot of things. And then when it comes to our government work, it's so RFP driven and, this is when the rfp is going to drop and then this is when it's due and now we've changed the due date out two months and so when those things happen that drastically changes uh, a financial forecast from a, a prospecting or pipeline um so that 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 gives me a lot of stress in in a way because it i, I think it's because i don't want our team to fail
2: mm-hmm. i appreciate you sharing that um you know one of the questions that just emerged from my mind and how important it is with your team then to incentivize the team players that aren't the direct sales. Cause we know sales mm-hmm. individuals are different people, right? I mean, they, right.
1: It's, they are,
2: it's the number, but I mean, when you have internal individuals um, and I'm not sure if that has been always part of your business, but how important is that to have the incentives and to have the compensation tied into how well the overall team does.
1: You know, this is just really something that we recently um, implemented. So, you know, that's why now the financial goals were set from each salesperson of our our, our stretch goals and whatnot. And we did it because, you know, we we created this uh, this bonus structure, this compensation structure, I should say, to incentivize each team member on, on what bottom line is doing. Um, but we did it to take away another stress that I used to have, which was, hey, it's December. Well, this is how we did. Yeah, we kind of missed this goal. um, um how much should I give this person for a bonus because they're they're not their performance their and the work that they do are not tied to financial performance, really, right? So it was always pretty um, um, you know, every year it would be different. I would go back to the spreadsheet from the year before, I'd ask my finance guy who got what, and we did all this thing and and it kept coming up as a conversation during my YPO forums. And one of my fellow um, YPOers said, I used to deal with this every December. And then we put a stop to that because this is what we've now done. And this is what we set and everybody's excited about it. And there's never a surprise, but if we don't hit this number, nobody gets a bonus. Well, Angie can't do that. I mean, I already know this because I'm already this morning. I, I can't wait if any of our team members listens to this, but this morning I'm emailing our head of finance and I'm like, Hey, Jared, we're so close to that number you know, what what are things in our financials that I can pull out so that bottom line looks the way that it needs to look? Because by God, I'm gonna find a way, you know, that people get their bonuses this year, even if our salespeople don't, if the pipeline or the, I'm sorry, the top line doesn't do what it was intended to do. Um, we'll make exceptions from that because there are a lot of people who have done phenomenal work through the year that really, you know, at the end of the day, um, could they, could they better our bottom line? Maybe. I, I don't think so. We I keep telling people we don't have an expensive problem. We've got a revenue problem. Um, it's kind of the thing that I keep telling them, and I make sure all of our salespeople are around when we talk about that um, because they, they're efficient. They are extremely efficient. We've grown um, so much, but our operations team and our support team has not, you know, we, we've maybe added a person here or there, but, you know, we've really created a process that is scalable, um, and, and they've, they've done a kick-ass job. So mm-hmm. it's it's tough, right. So I'm I'm trying to stay true to the new process that we have that does create complete transparency throughout the entire organization. Um, but also make sure that they're rewarded because you know, if we're just so close, I'm going to make sure that they get there
2: Right. When by the way, the, the toughest part of being a podcast host is to move with the questions uh-huh. and be able to try to process and then come up with the questions. You know, at the same time, so being able absolutely to put that pause in um, because I'm not a all right thirty seconds here to answer this question or, or rapid fire like that's not my style. I'm a jeans and t shirt kind of guy, as you know. So yep, I like that. Um, my next question has to go into like the overall team and company that you develop. And you've spoken about this before in terms of like rugby specifically. Mm-hmm. There has to be different types of players on the field. Can you draw that uh, crosswalk for us in terms of like your experience in rugby and how it's coming into like developing the team that, you know, that can be successful?
1: Absolutely. And I think rugby, of all the other sports that I've played, I think rugby is um, the best example of a team that I can think of. Uh, you know, in every team, there's a different skill set a point guard, a shooter, a post, whatever. But rugby, you really have some different uh, types of of individuals on that team, right? You could, you could look at one rugby person and, and think that that's the stereotype of a rugby mate and it's not right. So um, the other thing that I like about rugby in the parallel is that we will do anything to protect one another, right? It's, it's even, even if that person's not your best friend, when they go down, you are over the top of them, you know, and, and, and you're, you're protecting physically protecting them. Right. Um, And I think that, you know, when I look at our organization, um, number one thing that I've always told people is I've never had leadership development. I've never had I have a leadership coach. I have all of that stuff. But growing up through an organization, I didn't have management training. I, I I didn't have any of those things. And so any leadership style that has come out for me has been from a player coach perspective or really not player coach so much. It's really been team captain. So I've been team captain in so many areas of where Um, The head coach has looked to me to 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 implement. Right. He's looked to me to say, hey, this is what happened today during this match. You're going to go tell the girls that we're showing up at the lake at six thirty a.m. tomorrow morning for hill sprints and we're going to run the dam. Right. And I learned how to have really hard conversations and have people still like me at the end of the day um, through through being a, a team captain. And so when I think about our organization today and um you know in parallel to a rugby team number 1 I don't look at myself as the head coach I don't look at myself as the CEO I look at myself as part of the team um I look at myself as kind of a leader from I'm going to I'm going to lead by also doing um I I think about the different team members you know from HR to our recruiting to our sales team members to our ops team members right and I I celebrate the differences so For example, there's this woman that's worked for us for 12 years. Um, When I hired her, she's kind of my keep me out of jail person. Like I couldn't be less black and white and she couldn't be more black and white. Right. And it's interesting how very different we are, but how much adoration and love we truly and respect all of those things that we have for one another um, but we, we laugh and joke about how, how different we are. And, you know, there are times when contracts come into play and I'm a salesperson, right? Like I'm going to get this deal closed. We're going to get this done. And Linda's like, hold on, hold on. Did you see these clauses or were you just going to sign it? Right. And she drives me crazy and I drive her crazy, but we are on the same team and there's nothing we wouldn't do for each other. Right. And so I, um, you know, I look at the shapes and sizes On and rugby. We have different shapes and sizes, you know, within veracity. I think obviously every company does, but you can't have everybody like me. We would be, we would be a complete failure if everybody operated just the way that I do. We, right. it would be squirrel. It's all visionary stuff. It's all like, oh, look at that.
2: Let's go fast.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. Some of my, um, you know, some of the employees that have kind of helped us advance the most are people who are willing to listen to my ideas and then also willing to say, hold on time out, Angie. How are we going to do that? Because we know you're not doing it because you're moving on to the next thing. So let's let's take a step back and let's start breaking this down and and figure out how we're going to, you know, which which things are we going to take on? Because, by God, if it were up to me, we'd do them all. and uh, And we can't. And so I have great people around me who kind of remind me of that and, and love to harness my excitement about things. You know, they're like, go be excited, come up with those new ideas, but let us be the voice of reason. So I have a lot of voices of reasons around me. Sadly, it takes a lot of them. Well, of course. Yeah.
2: Always say you can slow down a racehorse easier than you can speed up a turtle, but it's tough to slow down the racehorse. Yeah.
1: Yeah, that's true.
2: See, there's there's one for you.
1: I love it. I am I got it in my head.
2: I heard I heard a good one the other day and it was, um, you know, knowing your team means you would never put a put a plow on secretariat. Like I like that. We're going to make secretariat into a plow horse, you know, and I think of mm-hmm. like sales individuals, right? Like you just make it easy for them new sales. Um, yeah.
1: So that's a constant conversation around here, by the way, before you segue, is that you know this too. Guess what? Everybody thinks about our salespeople. Oh my gosh, could they do anything for themselves? Oh my God, we have to cater to the salespeople. Oh my God. Can I just develop a new process so they can never do that again? And I'm like, no, 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 no. Your job is to make sure that when they do stupid stuff that we're, you know, we're picking up around them because in the midst of doing those things, you know, all of this good comes from it. So the last thing we want to do is create any freaking barriers to restrict them from being who they are. Right. And it's a, it's a constant conversation. I have a lot of empathy for the ops team and I have a lot of relate relater more stuff for the sales team. Uh, but it's a it's always a challenge.
2: Yeah. Well, that's why I mean I was immediately intrigued by the incentive and compensation factor for because I think I mean I've just seen companies that don't have that in place and like. Um, you get a bunch of bulls running around, and people are just not gonna like do whatever it takes in order to be successful mm-hmm. but when you have the team trying to win, yeah, seems like you do,
1: yeah, and it's it's funny because we've um we've got a guy that we're like whenever something happens and our you know the operations team gets a little stressed, we just call it winners problems, winner's problems. That's just another winner's problem, you know. and they all they all just want to win so it's good
2: you know you just um you just titled the podcast here angie okay i love it yeah that's awesome a question on that like so how do you deliver hard news and still have people like you
1: yeah i'm pretty soft about it so we have, well, I am and I am am not, it's really, I guess, situational, but um, so we we consider ourselves a, straight, a strength-based organization. So we follow Gallup, we do strength finders. Um, I have a phenomenal leadership coach that coaches me and has coached a lot of my direct reports. And um, she does everything through a strengths perspective. And so we have gotten to where we understand each other's top 10 strengths. And um, are you familiar with with strength finders and Gallup strength finders. So you either lead with execution, strategy, relationship, or influence. I lead with relationship. My, 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 um, strategic strengths are futuristic things of that nature. Like I'm always out there, but so much of my relationship strengths that I have, um, number one being developer, um, I have connectedness, but I have empathy. My empathy is extremely high. And so I think that you can deliver tough news, um, deliver hard messages, but still be kind. That's all the time. I'm like, you can be completely honest, be completely transparent. You just, my rule is you just have to be kind in how you do it, right? And so um, I think that because we understand each other's strengths so much, people know that when I'm saying stuff to them, they even know it's hard for me because it's hard for me. Because I, all I can think about is how is this hurting their feelings? How is this impacting their day? How is this doing these other things? Um, and so I do it in a way that's always maintaining relationship. And and I think that when those conversations, and they don't have to happen often, right? They, our organization is top notch. Our people are high level, um, experienced, experienced people. So it, it's, it's rare that those things have to happen. But when it does happen, um, you know, it's, it's done in kindness and it's done in what's best for the team. Right. And, and and things of that nature. And then also, because I know their strengths so well, oftentimes I can relate it to one of their top 10 strengths that's dialed up too high. Right. Mm -hmm. Like your, your woo is so high right now that you, you, you realize you left, you lost all of them because you were wooing so hard that they now think you're the cheesiest person on earth. Right. And so we, we've gotten accustomed to using strengths for coaching and it's always, when you take somebody and you you're like, this is a, such a strength for you when it's here, but when it's dialed up too high, this is how it shows up. And when you tell them that, like, it's just tweaked a little bit too high, you know, what other strength can you bring in? It changes the conversation. It really does. It makes people be like, oh my gosh, like my, uh, my empathy can be too high. My developer and positivity in combination we we went through this exercise and we said hey what is the strength that i most love about you and then what strength of yours drives me crazy and i had people say that they love um they love my futuristic um they don't like my combination of my developer and positivity because when somebody's not performing i i take it my personal responsibility that they're not performing and my positivity tells me that i'm going to get them there And I might try to get in there for a little bit too long, right? But we have those open conversations and it's become a a really great tool for us to use so that we can, you know, we we share that with other people. When you're going to have a meeting with somebody, you know, it's going to be a tough conversation. Look at your strengths. So you know where you're coming from and look at that person's strengths too. So that it kind of diffuses a lot of of things.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's been
1: powerful for us.
2: Yeah, it's fantastic. Do you miss running the dam at all?
1: Yeah. So here's what's funny about that. Um, my first rugby practice, I was 29 years old. Go to rugby practice. Somebody talked me into it. I had two different girls ask me to play. And what's funny about that, by the way, when you're doing something and somebody's like, hey, you look really athletic. Have you ever thought about playing rugby? I'm like, what are you talking about? Well, we're, When you're a rugger, you're always recruiting other ruggers because you never know when somebody's hurt. You need people on, your, on the pitch, right? So I finally got convinced to go to this rugby practice. And while we were at practice, um, by the way, I got convinced because I was playing pickup basketball at a, at a college here in town. And one of the girls came up to me and said, the way that you, as a not, an offensive player that does not have the ball, the way that you move defense is so great. Have you ever thought about playing rugby, which I didn't know anything about rugby at the time. And now like that makes all the sense in the world to me, which it did at the time. I finally get out to this rugby practice And we're doing these ball handling drills. And um, I'm like, oh, this feels so comfortable and so good. And I just was naturally just gifted at it. I'm like, boom, going to do it. At The very end of the practice, Keith, who is the husband of one of our players, he says, all right, we're going to do hill sprints. And I was like, hell yes. And all the other girls, ladies were like, oh man, I don't want to do this. We're doing hill sprints. Keith comes up beside me and he's like, I know you came out to this practice to do a favor for some people, but I'd really really like to see you stick with this. And um, I'm like, do we do hill sprints every time? He's like, yeah, like, I'm in, you know? So I know it's like one of those torturous things, but gosh, it makes you feel so good. And, and it's that team environment. We're all doing it. Um, And it, it, it just, it just locked me in. So yeah, I, I miss doing, I miss doing damn runs. I miss, I miss doing, One of the things when I get back on both my feet that I'm not going to take for granted ever again. Oh, did you see that? Um, One of the things I'm never going to take for granted again is going to be uh, walking or running. I can't wait to go to a high school and do, I love, love, love running bleachers. Mm -hmm. I'm unlike you. I don't want to go out and run a marathon anymore. I don't ever want to do that again. But do that either. Well, I, I I appreciate trail running because it's it's yeah. interesting. Right. It's it's challenge. It's challenging. You're jumping over this and doing that. I'm not just out on the, you know, out on the roads. But, yeah, I think today my equivalent to dam running would probably be bleachers. Yeah. I can't wait to do it. That's how I'm going to get back in shape.
2: Can't wait. Yeah. Love it. So when you were I mean, you got inserted into the pitch <laughs> immediately, though, right? Like coach was like, OK, you're going to be playing next game
1: he literally said, I'd like for you to come play this weekend. I said, I can't, I'm going back to hang out with my twin sister back in Wichita. And he goes, our tournaments in Wichita. I'm not joking. It was in Wichita. So I said, you know, I'll bring my sister out. We'll kind of check it out. I'll stand on the sidelines. I don't have any of the kit. They're like, we'll get you kitted up. You know, people are bringing me socks. Here's the rugby shorts. Here's the whole, the whole thing. Um, I get put into the game and I'm scared to death because what I've not done at this point is I've not been tackled and I've not tackled anybody hadn't done that. That was not part of our drills that day. Right. Um, And so they put me in and I I tell people to this day, like, if you, if you just stand on the sidelines and watch rugby, it's hard to learn. Mm -hmm. When you first start playing, you literally say, why did we just kick that ball out of the bounds? And, and now we're clapping about it. I don't understand why we're happy about that. Like it just took me time. It took me, this is another great thing that, that I I think of all the time in business perspective is you, you have to be doing it and having other people tell you at the time of like, Hey, you're off sides and, and taking that as a way of, they're helping me. They're not criticizing me. Right. It's, it happens all the time when, in rugby, when you first start, you're, you're put into a position, you don't know what you're doing. And you have people on, you know, flanking on both sides of you that are giving you guidance. And next thing you know, you pick it up and you go and so I scored my first try in that first game that I played in and all the girls were like fish, you know, just reeling me in, just totally reeling me in and I was hooked. I'm like when's the next tournament? When's the next thing? Um I did wake up the next day and feel like I'd been hit by a Mack truck. I I didn't experience I didn't know what that felt like to, you know, tackle people to the ground or be tackled to the ground and how every muscle in my body hurt, which yeah. I also loved. Like I was like, "Okay, am I paralyzed right now?" Oh, I'm not, this is just soreness. Great. I can't wait to do it again. So when the new season would roll around, it was always anticipating that pain. It's this, I know it makes me sound psycho, but I love it.
2: Look, I think all entrepreneurs one way or another have to, because entrepreneurship is a collision sport. Basketball is a contact sport, right? But entrepreneurship, it's a collision sport. Yeah, it really is. And I think one way or another, like, you're going to have to choose the pain that you want mm-hmm. because pain's going to be part of the deal. I mean, pain and pleasure. I say it's a joint deal, but it's like, I always think it's best to choose the type of pain you want. And that way you can at least acclimate to it and figure out, Hey, how is it that I'm going to be able to adjust and, and move on? Yeah.
1: That? Yeah. Now that's a good point. I like that. It's just full of them, Rob.
2: So, I'm always curious when you go from a sales professional business developer to own, to an owner and leader, like
0: mm-hmm.
2: that transition that you made, like what, what are a couple of the things since that time, 2006, that really stand out to you as hinge moments from, from your overall development?
1: Yeah, that's um, let's see here. There's things. Number one, when you're, when you're an entrepreneur and you're starting without, Big money behind you. You're doing everything. You're you're wearing every hat, right? So, um, leading into Veracity, one of the things that really drove me to to start the company in the first place was that I cared about people and the the role that I was in. I'm working with clients who i developed really great relationship. But we, you know, by what we do as a service based business, our assets are our people. And I had been in situations where I saw companies that we that I worked for. Treat these people right. So if, if we're selling a deal, we have to have somebody who's delivering that project, and we don't just have them sitting around on the bench. So we have a constant recruiting model, right? And so I was brought into this company because of my relationships in Kansas City, and I was asked, like, "Hey, Ange, who do you know that can do this?" And so we're we're selling the work. The delivery team's asking me, "Who do I know locally?" Instead of flying people in, and so I'm now recruiting people that I used to work with, and they're coming on to work for this company. And as it turns out. You know what the company told them and what was reality were not the same. So for example, a project comes to an end, there's bench time, we're going to redeploy you. This is on a Monday. On Friday, I'm getting a phone call. Hey, it was great working with you. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, what happened? Like, this feels like a little bit, bit of a bait and switch. And so when I started Veracity, I truly said that profit comes second, people comes first. And I think that if you take care of your clients, and you take care of your employees, the profit piece works out eventually. And it has, right? It it's never our focus um it's generally the outcome but never our focus so I'm going from a salesperson to becoming an entrepreneur and some of the big things for me was like I'm going to continue to take care of people so that was a constant like if I take care of them they're going to take care of me they're going to take care of the company they're going to take care of the community um the other things that 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 became very obvious to me were relationships with people outside of my organization which were my attorney, um, uh, my CPA and my bank, right? So just not long ago, we had a meeting with our bank to go through our 10 year strategy. Um, because if I'm making moves and I'm making investment moves and it's going to make impact our bottom line, I tell our bank again, transparency, Hey, I want you to know if you get a report that doesn't look great, it was intentional. Here's what's going on. But I kind of realized how important those relationships were early on. Um, and and by part was necessity, because I didn't know what the hell I was doing. It was like, hey, I happen to get this IRS letter. It means nothing to me. And they're like, oh, let me let me help explain that to you. But the big pieces, I'm going to say the biggest stretch for me from it wasn't leadership. It wasn't um, uh, how to sell business. It wasn't how to deliver the business. It was finances. So if you think about it, me as a as a salesperson, the finances that I look at is the revenue that I've sold. It is the uh, uh, the gross profit, and then it's what is my commission out of that. Literally, that was my idea of finances. And now I'm operating as a. I always said the evening I was an accountant at night, so I was our accounting team at night. I was creating invoices. I'm like paying bills. So you know, having that. Um, understanding what financials actually look like were, was the biggest, biggest stress. And it was the thing that stressed me out more than anything. And then, you know, you find somebody who consults with you and figures it out, and then you eventually make enough money to give that to somebody. But it's been a journey as an entrepreneur. I, I now can look at financial statements inside and out, and I know exactly what it means. And I used to tell my my um, accountant that the, I don't even know why we look at a balance sheet. It means nothing to me. Well, now I know what it means to me when I look at my balance sheet, right? But I think that for a lot of entrepreneurs, um, unless they come from a finance background, I think it's the scariest part. Just the understanding, right, of what what is the data telling you? Um, It was a big stretch for me. But it's something now that I'm so comfortable with that I I help other people understand when they start businesses. It's one of the things one of the first things that I talk to people about when they're struggling in their businesses, what do your financials look like? And they're like, uh, well, I just do this and that and it's on a spreadsheet. And I'm like, no, let's get this, this, this figured out for you. Yeah. But it was a big, it was a, it was a big um, pivot point for me to understand what it looks like to actually make money. And then where you know, just really, even your cost structure, how do you go out and bill, you know, create what your pricing is to your customer when you don't understand what your costs are when you fully understand what your costs are. So there was a lot there. I mean, instantly it was like, how am I gonna take care of people? Um, how quick can I get benefits established? Um, and, and then how do we keep the financial straight and then continue to move forward? And and uh, how do I find the right people around me that are gonna check all the right boxes so I don't do something wrong and end up in jail? Again, that's what I'm always like. I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm such a risk taker in so many areas. But one of the places, kind of going back to my childhood, is I'm extremely conservative when it comes to how spending money out of the business, which is unless uh, the things I justify is I'll hire 10 more salespeople tomorrow. That's an investment. That's not an expense, right? Like those are the things that um, kind of get me jazzed up that I'm willing to spend the money on. But otherwise, you know, I, like I said, now I understand how important that balance sheet is because you can see the reward there as we're going out and investing into future things for our company. And um, that all comes from, how I started the company. And those few people around me that I can think of, like my CPA at the time, I'm asking him, have this profit in the company. Should I be taking it out and investing in another company? And we literally were across from the world headquarters of what was Yellow Freight, now YRC. And he looked out and he said, I don't know. Are you Are you wanting to invest in yourself? Do you believe in yourself or do you believe in the leadership over there at YRC? And I hadn't thought about that in my mind of have this profit. I should take this money and go put it in some sort of investment. And he taught me that, you know, as you're growing your business, that the investment should be on yourself. And that's where I put all of my money to scale the company. Funny enough, YRC just went bankrupt six months ago and laid off all of their Kansas City employees, which is such a sad thing. But I kind of sit here and I go, I remember when he told me that he right. was like, invest in yourself. And um, that's what we still do.
2: No, I, I love it. Angie, curiosity has always been a core value of, of your company. Can you share the mm-hmm. power and just exactly like how that plays out? Like what's a concrete example of hey, how does the power of being curious plays out?
1: Yeah. It starts from the very beginning of my career. Um, taking a chance, moving to Kansas City to take a job as a recruiter. I was a recruiter in IT before anything else. Um, my my degree's in computer information systems, but you know the things that I learned back then are really not even applicable today. I mean, network versus servers versus you know all of these other things. So yes, all applications—they're all—they're all applicable. But I really didn't know anything. And so, as a recruiter, you know, picking up the phone and and calling somebody that's got twenty years of experience and and interviewing them for a job that I know little about—curiosity completely taught me everything, or should I say, the use of curiosity taught me everything. Because when I interviewed people, I didn't just I was not the type of person who simply had an interview form, asked the questions, wrote the answers down. I was at the same time saying, oh, well, that's interesting. Can you tell me more about that? And I was doing it truly because I wanted to learn more about it. On the flip side, when I became a salesperson, the, um, the thing that made me good at being a salesperson was sitting in front of a customer. And I wasn't trying to get out of them, What can I, what can I find out about you so I can sell you something? What when I sat in front of people, I'm like, "Tell me about your next eighteen months, and what are you most worried about?" And you know, things end up falling out of that process, But for me, it was like learning. i I'm somebody who if if you and I started having a conversation about an enterprise i t department, technology department for a large company, I can talk to you if you are in the network group, I would be talking to you. If I'm over here and you're building out applications, I would be asking you what those applications are being used for. I I can fool somebody that I actually know what I'm doing. And when I say that, I've never been in delivery. I've never delivered a single service that Veracity offers. And um, But I've seen us help customers in a way, and I only learned about it because I, I, to this day, will say, hey, I want to see what we're delivering for XYZ clients. And I want to see what that deliverable looks like, because it's still my way of learning. So for me, curiosity and learning are, are like hand in hand. That makes sense. Sure. I I didn't love learning out of a book for a class. I don't want my son to hear me say this uh, for a class that I thought was, I don't understand why I'm having to take this class. That was not exciting to me, but um, learning through sheer curiosity is like fuels me. and And so we see that play out here all the time. It's It plays out also when we're talking to employees, like when you're trying to understand where somebody's coming from and you really care and you're asking curious questions instead of leading questions. It's one of the things I tell people all the time. I used to have bosses that asked me leading questions all the time and what they were trying to get me to a place that they wanted me to be. They were not curious about what was going on. And and so I, I use that as an example all the time. I'm like, don't come in here asking me questions that are rhetorical you know but let's let's when we ask questions they need to be out of curiosity not out of making somebody feel stupid or you know trying to get somebody to go where you want them to go that's not that's not
2: how it works playing the gotcha game Mm -hmm. yeah yeah that's fantastic when um when it comes to like hires um What happens, because I know there's, you said it before, I mean, it's not bad hires, but just wrong hires. Like when you kind of Mm -hmm. reflect on that piece, like, is there anything that ever stands out in terms of, you know, Hey, that just wasn't the right fit. And what did I miss when it comes to that?
1: I think about that all the time. I've, I've had, um, I've started for even for uh, leadership positions that report directly to me, I involve a lot of people on our team. Um, and I do that. Because I want different perspectives on this person. Because again, I lead with relationships. I also have woo in my top five. I have a tendency to get somebody so excited about a job. And next thing you know, they want it so bad that they are, they're, they're like saying all the right things. And so in return, I hear sometimes what I want to hear. And um I I so when somebody doesn't work out, I do a lot of reflecting. What did I miss? Um, how, what, what kind of questions can I ask differently next time? Um, maybe I should spend less time selling to them of how freaking amazing we are and how much fun this is to really learning more about what their passions are and what they consider themselves good at. Right. Because we, we have this great way of attracting really great talent. Um, and, and, you know, we just won best places to work in Kansas city, which is a very difficult award to get. And, um, you know, so people look at us and I have to I have to remember that just because somebody wants to work for us doesn't mean they're a great fit for our company either culture-wise, um, or you know, just the skill that I need. I, I also have the tendency to see people's value and where they are um strengths in them. And I think, oh, well, they may not fit for this role, but they could fit for this role. So I can get clouded by my relationship strengths very quickly. And I could think that a lot of people are good good fits, but you know, I I think one of the things that I've decided I'm going to do is I I do so much on instincts and gut that I'm trying to I'm trying to get more mature about using some data points in addition to that, right? And kind of asking more open ended questions to people and let them talk about how they handle things. Because for me, when somebody's not worked out, it's it's not always because they're not good in their job. It's because they're culturally um, they lead in a way that just doesn't jive with our team. And when you're talking to people about how you lead, they can very much love that. Like they can love that I lead with empathy and I'm a leader of compassion. But that doesn't mean that then when they come in, you know, they'll say like, this is exactly the kind of place I want to work. But then when in turn, that's not how they lead their people, right? They they lead with a strong hand. They lead by telling people what to do versus, you know, showing them the end result. So when people haven't made a good fit, it's probably not because from a skill set they weren't. A good fit it's because if you come in here and you don't care about people and you don't care about your team and how the decisions you make impact them then it's just not a fit so that has been i think hard for me to suss out during interviews because people get excited about what we stand for and not everybody stands for the same thing they want to be treated that way but they don't want to treat that way does that make sense absolutely it's it's
2: tough Wow, thank you for sharing that. That's insightful. Love. That's
1: yeah. awesome.
2: Angie, what question should I be asking that that I haven't asked?
1: Oh gosh. At at what point am I going to be in a place that I'm just focusing on my golf game?
2: I can't believe I totally- it- how did I not even bring up golf? What am I thinking? Oh my gosh. I got so that's so engrossed here. I mean, I have my golf questions and I totally forgot. Oh my goodness. All right, let me let me reset this whole interview. Okay, perfect. Well, let me ask you the question then. Like what what about golf have you learned about yourself?
1: Oh gosh, that I still have no patience. Um By the way, I would have told you before doing Strength Finders that competitiveness was my number one strength. It's not; it's number twenty-three, and I'm shocked. But do you know what is in my top ten? Is achiever. And I, looking back, so I I can think back to the question you said earlier about sports. Looking back, I I had an awful temper. So I've been intrigued with you since I since I started learning about you because of this whole aspect of mental toughness. Because the thing that I've always said, even with my golf game, is that my mental capacity is what is keeping me from being an exceptional golfer, right? I'm a slightly above average golfer. And, um, I also say that I'm a, a 11 handicap and people would be like, that's a good golfer. And I'm like, but it's not under 10. Like I need to be in the single digits, but this is all about my achiever. And so when I look back at complete conniption fits that I've had in sports, which I used to do, and I don't, don't anymore. Can't tell you the last time I threw a club, I can tell you the last time I snapped a club over my leg, though. Um, It was one of those things. It's like, it's an accident, right? And it's no. Um, Anyway, (laughs) I think that it's taught me that I still it's it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks about me or my game. It's about how I feel about me and my game and my expectations of myself are incredibly high. Right. And to the to the point that um, I don't always show myself grace. So I have a tattoo on my arm that says grace. It's my grandmother's signature. Um, and I got it to kind of remind myself, to show myself grace every now and then because I'm so hard on myself. And golf, every time I play golf, I realize how hard I am on myself, even if I've let myself slip in other areas. It's the one area that I'm just like, and it's it's all I'm always chasing something. You know, you're never I picked up rugby and that weekend scored a try and then made an all-star team the next month. And golf yeah, it's something else. It's a whole other beast. And I haven't figured it out yet. And I'm and I'm just not quite there. So I need some therapy. I need some mental toughness therapy uh, just so I can continue to play. But I do love it.
2: I've noticed if I play a bad round of golf or have a particularly bad stretch, things that I find in my mind, quote unquote, unacceptable. Mm-hmm. It's not just that. I think about everything in life that isn't going the way that I want. And it all floods, you know, and it's like, how could you, how could you make that such bad business deal when it comes to that? Oh, that makes sense. I mean, you can't make a six footer. So of course you can't do anything else. Right.
1: Totally. Totally. Golf, golf can point out other areas of your life that you're just not, you're, you just didn't get it done somehow, even if it's unrelated. Yeah. I am not, when I'm having a bad round, I'm not only a bad golfer. I think I'm a bad person. Like I'm just now the, an horrible person, even, you know, it's crazy. <laughs> like I don't just suck at golf. I just suck at life. Um, and these are the, this is the yeah. crap that golf does to you. Right. And um, yeah, it's interesting. I think I've come a long way. I, I really have, but I have these moments. of, And if I have something else going on in my life, when I'm out playing and I have that bad round, it is amplified, right? It is amplified bad. Um, because I, I just think about all the, all the other stuff and it just pours into really bad golf. It's the only sport that I, I think that's my other issue too. I've played some sports where I can just hit the volleyball harder. Um, I get to tackle somebody like I get out aggression through sports typically and golf clearly is a finesse game. That's not about my big muscles, right? It's,
2: yeah.
1: It's it's finesse, and I don't do finesse very well. I'm kind of a bull in a china cabinet.
2: Want to listen to your favorite music, but you're sick of all the commercial interruptions and negative news today? Tune in to kukoradio.com. Music for your mindset. We're a commercial-free online radio station. playing nothing but hits. Our free iOS and Android apps are available for download at kukoradio.com. Yeah, I can always say, like, because I haven't played in the last month. Because I haven't been wanting to play. No, that's mm-hmm. not true. A couple of scrambles. Scrambles are great. You know what I mean? Because you know who cares? Not a problem. Right. I can hit the bad shots, and that's fine. Um, I don't have double double staring at me, and you know, in my mind. I mean, I guess my question is, is like, how? How does patience then equate to like your overall golf game?
1: I think it comes into play. Um, I have more patience when I'm feeling at peace, right. When things are just good. Um, I have a tendency I'm, I'm really bad. If I go play during the day, I'm working at the same time. And, and, you know, if my patience level gets low on something else, then next thing, you know, it's like the next shot is just not good. I, because you know, this is, everybody knows this. If your body is tense, there's not a good golf swing. It's just, you're, it's, you're trying to manipulate and control instead of just being smooth. And um, I, I think, you know, patience plays into me this for a lot, but a lot of my patience issue in golf is just allowing myself to go through the process of becoming a better golfer. I don't have time for that shit. I'm ready now. Right. Like exactly, I'm an, of I'm an athlete. I should be great at golf and that's where this sport is so it's humbling, right? But I don't have the patience to do the things that I um I, I have improved and improved and improved, but I'm like, why am I not there yet? Like I just don't understand why I should ever get a bogey, let alone a double. And when it happens, a triple when that happens, what? Like I how how does that happen? It's just crazy. It's just a ball that sits still.
2: Yeah, that's a question that I actually asked myself. Like, how did that just happen? <laughs> oh, yeah, I know it was a one seven, you know, it was a 220 carry and you know like should just hit wedge over here but mm-hmm. no you know yeah you know, the decision making process when it comes to golf as well is like i can like i'm going to self disclose to you yeah just between you and me and if i go into the round and my overarching theme no matter what is rob your whole goal it needs to just have fun like it doesn't matter what you're going to play you got to have fun like that becomes my baseline and my anchor. and I can always mm-hmm. refer to that. Yeah. At least up till like hole 15 or 16, depending on how yeah. it is, you know? Yeah. If I don't have that, if I have a score or beating somebody or like, cause I, I really don't like to gamble when it comes to golf because mm-hmm. that, it that changes, changes the game. Things. Yeah. And it's, it does not make it fun for me. Right. So, and I'm not saying like on occasion we can, but I don't know if you're the same way. Like if I don't have that, like if I'm not tethered to something outside of like golf, like yeah. I, my self will run riot.
1: Some of my most unfavorite rounds is when I'm like, um, I, I broke 80 one time. And when you, when you break 80, all of a sudden, you're like, I should be able to do that again and again and again. And so, um, most of my bad rounds is because I went into the round with an expectation of what I wanted to the outcome to be. It was not at all because I was going and hanging out with Lauren and going to see my friends. And, you know, I have to sometimes take a step back. And um, it's why I like to play pretty courses, because if I'm if I'm at a course and I'm like literally looking around at the beauty, it changes my mindset. I'm like, I'm here today to be outdoors, be with people I care about, look at the beautiful scenery around me and just focus on that. But unfortunately, I'm not wired that way. I'm wired in. And what is my score going to be? And I try not to. So one thing that I have done, so I've got the Garmin watch that has, you know, you can you can put your score in after every hole. I'm now in the habit that when it says, do you want to keep your score this round? I say no, because it drastically changed my game when I did. Because every time you put it, it will tell you how many how strokes over par you are as soon as you go to the next hole. And seeing that every time made m- me so tense for the next hole because I was like, I can't have another par on this round, this back the front side. You know, because I started thinking about what my front nine score was going to be. It literally is all I could focus on. So if that's my focus in golf, forget about it. And so I will say in some of our championship stuff at, at uh, match play and different things like that, I don't do well. And I don't do well because I'm so focused on winning that I become a shitty golfer. Yeah. It is so weird. If my focus is to win, I'm not playing well. I mean I could I could go out and shoot 105 in those scenarios, right? And it's like what just happened? Our club yeah. championship, I think I shot a 96. I was furious, but it was all because I cared so much about how I scored and I didn't care about just being out there because the our, you know, in our club we we really are trying to increase the women in our club championship. We're like, "Come on, it's fun. I'm part of the recruiting team saying, "Come on, it's fun. It doesn't matter how you do." And then I get there and I turn into a freaking crazy person.
2: Did you stick around for like the the awards or were you
1: out? Oh, I think I had a beer and maybe said F this and, you know, took off.
2: I, I, remember, I don't Like, go ahead.
1: I, I was just going to say it. They put that, they put your scores up on the window and it stays there for the two days when people are coming in and out of there. Right. I'm like, this is awful. This is shaming. I'm embarrassed. I'm
2: out. Yeah. And I like, that's the thing about golf is there, there is not another sport that is going to put an indicator of like how that, and again, even though it's like how it was on that round,
1: mm-hmm.
2: I start thinking about, boy, everyone's going to see here. Angie shot a 96 and they're going to be wondering what the hell is up with that? You know? But right. Like,
1: absolutely. You know, I thought you know, she was a, sport, a good golfer. You know, like a
2: sport that it happens like that, where it is posted for everybody, even if you shoot, right. Even if you score, you know, eight points in a game, it's not. Oh, well, she had eight points and eight turnovers. Like, it, right? You no, know?
1: it doesn't happen. No, it's a wonky thing, and it, it gets in my head. And that's, you know, one of the things that I'm. I I I've listened to some different like, uh, meditational golf things. Like I'm starting to do those things and be like, God, you take this so seriously. Um, but I'm, I'm trying to work on it because it, it bothers me because I want this to be a lifelong sport, but there are times I ruin it for myself. I, I don't have fun. I'm, I, I, I think I, for the most part, I make it, I, I am in a place, I don't make it not fun for other people because I've been around those people too. Right. But there's, there's, there's been occasion where I've, I've been so angry that everybody could see that I was angry, but for the most part, I'm trying to keep it inside more because I don't want to ruin other people's experience, Yeah, but it's tough.
2: No, no, no. I'm, 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 I'm totally with you on that. I've always found like the, the only solution I can do to get outside my own head is to then start engaging with them in some kind of conversation outside of golf or like what's going mm-hmm. on. Yeah. Um. Look, I, we could go on for another hour. And, I have uh, no doubt. And I appreciate you. Thank you so much for bringing up not only the time, but thank you for bringing up golf. I mean, I was going to completely forget that.
1: <laughs> That's crazy, but it's all good. It's all good.
2: The assertiveness versus competitiveness, um, where you are on that chart, that totally makes sense too. You know, Achievement, a-
1: achiever, yeah. achiever, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah which I'm is like- why, which which is what makes individual sports so difficult, right? I mean, in a in a group sport, you it's about the whole team winning, and when it when And that's like the competitiveness from that angle. But then when it's an individual sport like golf, when you're an achiever, I mean, it's all on you, right? And it's like, you know, one quick thing before we go, I did this, my 360 review with my coach and she said, Hey, before we get started, I want to ask you, um, when I see somebody that ranks themselves the way that you ranked yourself, I have to ask, are you extremely humble or are you insecure? And I said, well, I don't, I don't think I'm either. Um, I said, I I think I'm humble, but I'm not extremely humble. But I don't think I'm insecure. And she said, Angie, on a scale of one to five, where you had your mentor gave you a five, you gave yourself a two. And your peers and your and 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 then your employees reporting your direct reports gave you a four, you gave yourself a two. And I I looked at her and I said, Well, Teresa, I'm here to get better. Like if I'm here, she so she looks at my strengths and she said, Oh, you have achiever. She goes, You're you're good or great is a moving. It's a moving scale, it's a moving target. Cause every time I get here, then all I can think about is achieving the next thing. And that's golf, a hundred percent. I don't think I could ever be satisfied being an 11, 12, 13 handicapper. I, I when I was a 23, that's all I, I wanted, wanted that. And now I'm there and I'm like, it's a moving, moving target. It's golf.
2: More little worth
1: Yeah, <laughs> for sure.
2: Thank you so much. Uh, I, I really did. I, I really enjoyed this. And, um, yeah, I appreciate you.
1: Appreciate
0: you, too. Thanks for listening to Mental Toughness with Dr. Rob Bell. To find out more about Dr. Rob, visit his website at drrobbell.com or follow him on Twitter at Dr. Rob Bell. And subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform to get the next episode of Mental Toughness as soon as it's available. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.